to hear people hating the name of Jesus at this time of year and opposing it with lawsuits and boycotts and even violence is nothing new. God's redemptive plan has always been opposed. There have been those who so hated God and his Savior that they've sought to thwart him in his plan of saving grace and would even use deadly force to do so. Psalm 2, written a thousand years before the incarnation of Christ, tells us of the plot, the conspiracy, by the kings of the earth to try to subvert God's redemptive plan, but immediately tells us that the Father's response is to sit in heaven and laugh at them, showing that all worries about conspiracies are misplaced fears because they cannot succeed against an omnipotent God. When we think of Christmas, we typically think of joy and the elect angels, how they come and announce to Joseph and Mary that a Savior is coming, how they then fill the skies outside of Bethlehem singing songs of praise to Jesus. What we typically don't think of when we think of Christmas is intrigue, death plots, and opposition. But today in our text, we will see just that. Every significant aspect of the conception, birth, infancy, and the life of Jesus was prophesied in advance. In some cases, more than a thousand years before the fact. In some cases, four thousand years before the fact. And over the last few weeks on Sunday mornings, we've been examining the eternal plan of God. What theologians call his decree. And then it's working out. Anyone can make a plan, but can you work it out perfectly? And we've seen that God made an eternal decree and then by his providence has worked it out completely, moment by moment, especially in the incarnation of Christ. When we think of God's providence, what is it that is the most attractive, the most astounding, the most beautiful? It is his working of all things together to bring his son for the savior of sinners. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at the providence of God in the preparation of a forerunner, John the Baptist. Then we looked at the providence of God in the virgin conception of Christ. Then last week, we studied the providence of God even in the journey to Bethlehem by Joseph and Mary. And last night, we looked at the providence of God in the mysterious visitors, the wise men. This morning, we're going to examine a much lesser known and a much lesser understood incident connected to the birth of Jesus, but we will see that it was prophesied and fulfilled as we look at the providence of God in the protection of the infant Jesus. You'll see Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by this saga in the life of Jesus, and you will see that Jesus was violently opposed and hunted to be killed even from his earliest days. You will need your Bible, not only as we look at Matthew 2, but as we look at the Old Testament prophecies. Let's seek the help of the Lord now. O sovereign Lord, we bow before you in your holy word now. We acknowledge that we're unworthy servants, not even deserving to possess your word, but how we praise you, that you, because of your great love for us, your children, you've revealed this to us. You've given us this sharp sword that divides truth from error, belief from unbelief. You've given us this word that is sweeter than honey 
and nourishes and sustains us. You've given us a light for our paths while the rest of the world stumbles in darkness. So now take this word, make it understandable to us, cause us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit to learn and digest and profit from this very text. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I would remind you of God's providence that God has a plan, his sovereign eternal decree. We are told in Ephesians 1.11 that he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. There is nothing outside of this eternal plan of God, even down to the hairs on your head and the breath in your lungs. This plan of God, his decree, his eternal plan is holy and wise and unchangeable and is all for his own glory. And he's working his plan out. The working out of God's plan is called providence. Our shorter catechism, question 11, and by the way, if, you're, if your children are not here on Wednesday night, your children are not being taught our theology, our doctrine, but our, even our smallest children are being taught our church's catechism. Uh, the question comes in shorter catechism 11, what are God's works of providence? Find a five-year-old and they can tell you the answer to this. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Providence means that God rules over everything and does so according to his eternal plan. He currently rules over eight billion people on earth and every one of their actions and countless billions Billions in another realm beyond the grave, and he does so with ease. Nothing is too small or too large to escape God's governance. The lot that's cast, we're told in Proverbs 16, it's every return is of the Lord, it's under God's control. The raising up and the putting down of rulers is all in God's providence. Scripture doesn't deny that bad things happen. That's going to be important as we look at our text this morning. The Holy Spirit simply says that God is controlling all things, good and bad, to serve his wise purposes. The doctrine of God's providence can only be true if God is sovereign, meaning he has the right and the power to do as he pleases. If God is omnipotent, having no limitations on his power. If God is omnipresent, being in all places with his whole person. And is omniscient, knowing all things past, present, and future. The doctrine of God's providence is meant to amaze you. Even this morning as we look at our text, you're, you're meant to elbow the person next to you and say, wow, this is astounding. There is nothing that more clearly shows God's weaving of a tapestry that brings him glory than studying all the minute details of his providence, especially in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And what I want us to examine in some depth this morning, as I said a moment ago, you will need your Bible so that you see these things are so, is I want us to examine the protection of the infant Jesus. Look with me at Matthew chapter 2, but this will not be the only text we see because Matthew 2 itself will point us to other texts. And I want to walk through the steps of intrigue in Matthew chapter 2. We begin calmly enough in Matthew 2, verse 1, 
And we see that the birth of Jesus takes place in Bethlehem. As we've already seen in Sunday mornings past, it takes place in Bethlehem because it was prophesied to take place in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2, prophesied over 500 years earlier. And again, it's a head scratcher that the Messiah, the one who would come and be the savior of God's elect from all over the world, from every tribe, nation, and tongue, would be born in a tiny little podunk place like Bethlehem Ephrathah. Well, then we are told in verse 2 of our narrative, Matthew 2, that wise men from the east. Now, we don't know if that means Iran, India, even as far away as China. Good cases have been made for all of those places. They come to Jerusalem following the leadership of a star, and they look carefully at what they do. They ask questions And they make assertions. Look at the question the wise men ask. Where is he? They're focused. Where is he? You know, the one born king of the Jews. So here come this band, this large group of men, soldiers and philosophers and, and carriers who are bringing all of these expensive gifts. And they have one thing on their mind. Where is he? They ask in a foreign tongue. And then they make a couple of assertions. Look at the assertions they make. They make the assertion that they've seen an astronomical phenomena, this star that somehow or another has communicated to them that the king of the Jews has been born. And then they make a second assertion, one that's powerful. Here's this group of foreigners. Israelites, of course, are convinced that they are the only people who know the true God. And they immediately are whirled into confusion by the assertion of these men. These men, these foreigners, state that the mission of their visit is to come and worship the Savior, the King of the Jews. Of course, this event itself, the coming of Gentiles into Israel to worship the Redeemer, was prophesied hundreds of years before in Isaiah chapter 60, when Isaiah wrote, Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And so, of course, you know what would happen. This is the stir. This is the buzz in all of Jerusalem. Who is this group of men? This group of men who have come bringing very expensive gifts, asking questions about the birth of the king of the Jews. And so look what we're told in verses 2 and 3. Herod and all of Jerusalem were troubled. This is what's on everybody's mind. Who are these people? What are they up to? What is meant by this statement that they're coming to find the king of the Jews? They're on a strange errand. These sorts of people don't come to Jerusalem speaking a foreign language, asking about the king of the Jews. And so Herod, Romans installed puppet king, he calls for a series of emergency meetings. Look at them in the text in Matthew 2. First, he calls for a Bible conference. Do you see it there in verse 4? And he asked, as we saw last night, he asked for the people at the opposite ends of the theological spectrum to come. He wants to hear all perspectives. And so he calls the chief priests. These would be the liberals, those people who are in Rome's pocket. And he also calls the scribes. These would be the biblical fundamentalists, those people who who loved the word of God and believed it. He calls them, the people on the extremes together, and he wants to know from them, 
Uh, guys, I have a biblical question for you. Where is the king of the Jews to be born? The Christ? And the Bible scholars reply. Look at verses 5 through 7. And they agree. Oddly enough, they would agree on nothing normally. But they agree on this. It's a matter of biblical revelation. They say, um, the king of the Jews, the Savior, is to be born in Bethlehem. And they both say, liberals and conservatives, priests and scribes alike, both say, we know Micah 5.2. This is an easy one. Everybody can agree on this. He's to be born in Bethlehem. Herod dismisses them. He calls a second emergency meeting. And he calls into his throne room these strange visitors, the wise men. Look at verse 7. Again, these are philosophers, scholars from whether it's Iran or India or China. And he wants to know from them. He's, he's trying desperately to figure out where this newborn king of the Jews is. And so he asks them a timing question. Look at verse 7. When? When did you see the star? And so then he, he sends them. This is Herod's blunder, but of course it's all God's protection in his providence. In verse 8, even though Herod is not their king, these are foreigners. They don't have to obey Herod. But he sends these wise men, look at verse 8, to Bethlehem with instructions. Search carefully. Find him. And then bring back a confirming report to me. And listen to how he makes it sound so pious. Why? Because I want to be a worshiper too, fellas. So after you've worshipped, come back and tell me all the details. Tell me the street address. Tell me all the details. And notice something that you should see about Herod's request. This incident proves once again that the believer always has more to fear from the civil government than he does to hope. Well, the foreign wise men did find the Messiah by following the star that had been leading them. Look at verse 11. These men had come all the way to Bethlehem for one purpose, and that is to worship Christ to lay their most extravagant gifts at his feet. They bowed and adored him in saving faith and reverence. And then they receive a divine warning. Look at verse 12 very carefully. In verse 12, we're told, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Herod realizes that the wise men have not come back and not reported the location of the Messiah, but have gone home. And look what we read of him in verse 16. We read that he is exceedingly angry. He's furious. So in an attempt, now don't lose the big picture. Here's the plot line. The Messiah has been born. He's been born in Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod wants to kill him. Simple plot line. So in an attempt to make sure that he kills any potential usurper to his throne, because he doesn't understand that the Messiah is not a political ruler, Herod sends an execution squad to Bethlehem. And here are their orders to kill every boy under two years of age. Now let me repeat that. This is where the incarnation story gets grisly. It gets brutal. Herod sends 
an execution squad of Roman soldiers to the tiny little hamlet of Bethlehem. Ask for birth dates. Any boy under two years old, kill him. How should we kill him? I don't care. That's your business. Kill them. Another revelation. Do you notice how thick and fast the revelations are coming in Matthew chapter 2? Look at verse 13. In verse 13, an angel warns Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, of this attempt that's coming on Jesus' life. And the angel commands Joseph to take his family and flee to Egypt. The angel commands Joseph to stay in Egypt until he tells them to return. Now I want you to notice something profound about Joseph. A lesser man would have shook it off and said, just a bad dream. Or a lesser man would have engaged in delayed obedience. Really? Pack up my family. I've already made this long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Jump up and make another journey down to Egypt. I don't speak the language. I don't have a job there. No, there's just too many problems with a move at this stage of our life. But notice Joseph. His immediate, unquestioning obedience. We are told in verse 13 and 14 that that night he grabs Mary and Jesus and flees, heading for Egypt. All of this, what you're seeing there, is all about the supernatural, providential preservation of the Savior. Yes, Jesus must die a violent death, but it must be on the Father's timetable. This will happen again during Jesus' public ministry for three and a half years. We are told repeatedly during that ministry of attempts on his life during the Gospels. But none of them were successful. Think, for example, of the attempt on his life in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus comes to his, his adopted hometown of Nazareth. And the people in town try to throw him off a cliff. But they're prevented from doing so. Or think of what we're told in John chapter 7, where we're told Jesus did not walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Or think about that incident in John chapter 8, where we're told they took up stones to throw at him, to stone him to death. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and passed by. All of these efforts, whether it was Herod's goon squad or these different attempts to kill him during his adulthood and his public ministry. All of these attempts were thwarted because, to use the language of John 7.30, it was not yet his time. It never occurred to them that they were seeking to accomplish that which God's purpose made impossible. Look back at our text in verse 15. After escaping Bethlehem, Joseph flees to to Egypt until, we are told, until the death of Herod. Which, when you add up the chronological clues, is probably about two years. Now, it's a good thing that Joseph had been given gold for Jesus from the wise men in verse 11. Because he and Mary would need funds to travel to a foreign country and set up house. Turns out this whole incident is providentially ordained because Jesus, in every step of his, must fulfill prophecy. 
And what I want you to notice is I want you to notice how God had prophesied about this. Keep one finger here. Now, you're really going to have to be adept this morning because I'm going to ask you. I mean, you may actually have to do some of this stuff with your Bible. I'm going to ask you to look at three texts. But if you can open presents that are wrapped and tied up, you can do this with three texts. Look at Hosea chapter 11. Hosea 11, we have this brief prophecy. Hosea 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And if you read this text, you'll see that Hosea is writing about the nation of Israel that God called out of Egypt at the Exodus. Here in this prophecy, the Lord refers to Israel when the nation was a child, meaning at the beginning of its national existence, a young nation, using the metaphorical language of the nation as a child. But Matthew picks up that prophecy and applies it to Jesus and says, well, secondarily, it was talking about the history of Israel, but primarily it's talking about the calling of Jesus up out of Egypt. So this, this angry tantrum of Herod's, this wicked act of murdering 20 to 30 little boys in the area of Bethlehem is the fulfillment of a prophecy of the incarnation. By the way, this act of murdering 20 to 30 little boys is not unusual for Herod. He was known for his outburst of rage and his lack of self-control. This is the same Herod who killed most of his family in order to be crowned king by the Romans. This is the same Herod who had three of his own sons killed thinking that they were plotting to take over his throne. And when he himself, Herod himself, was near death, he left orders that one member of each family in the nation should be executed so the whole nation would really be in mourning when he died. Thankfully, those orders were never carried out. (coughs) Now, to fully understand the incarnation of Christ in this plot, I want you to look at a second Old Testament prophecy. Look at Jeremiah 31. And again, calling upon you to do some serious labor this morning as a hearer. In Jeremiah 31, verse 15, what we read is our Old Testament reading a moment ago. This is given 700 years, 600 years prior to the incarnation of Christ in the The prophet Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. Let me explain what Ramah is. Stare at Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Ramah was the place at that time where the Babylonian invaders, captors, separated families, and claimed prisoners for the long march to Babylon. It was a place of utter despair. Fathers straining against their chains. Mothers screaming as their children were taken away from them. And Jeremiah the prophet, he looks at this scene in Ramah. At least for people who can think covenantally and love their families. 
and he sees the most heart-wrenching spectacle a man can see. Children taken from their mother's arms. And in the context of Jeremiah 31, the prophet pictures Rachel. More on her in just a moment. He pictures Rachel peering out of her grave and bewailing the sad deportation of her children, her descendants, as they're marched past her tomb in Ramah, Bethlehem, into forced captivity in Babylon. Now, to fully understand the figure of speech, I want you to see how often and with what frequency this incident comes up. To fully understand this figure of speech concerning Rachel, you have to go back all the way to Genesis 35. I told you you'd have to do some work. So look at Genesis 35. All of this comes to fruition in the life of Jesus. In Genesis 35, verse 16. We read, Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you'll have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Son of My Sorrow, or Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, the mother of Joseph. While traveling from Bethel to to Bethlehem, she stops near Ramah. She delivers her second son, Benjamin, and then she dies. So when Herod killed, put this all together, when Herod killed the babies of Bethlehem in Jesus' day, the maternal weeping that went on as these 20 to 30 sons of Bethlehem was just like that of Rachel's 1,800 years before. When Rachel wept in sorrow and named her son, son of my great sorrow, over her pain and her separation that her death would bring. I want you to listen very carefully. This calls for mature thought. In Jeremiah's day, seven, six hundred years before Christ, we have mothers weeping in Ramah, Bethlehem, because their children are being taken from them by a cruel foreign ruler. In Jesus' day, we have mothers weeping in Ramah, Bethlehem, because their children are being taken from them by a cruel foreign ruler, Herod. In Jeremiah's day, the sons that aren't killed are taken off to a foreign land, Babylon. In Jesus' day, the son that isn't killed is taken off to a foreign land, Egypt. The real question we should ask is, is there any comfort? Look back to Jeremiah 31. Once again, I realize I'm asking you to do a lot of work for a Christmas day. In Jeremiah 31, Following the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, verse 15, the verses afterwards go on to assure Rachel that her lost children, referring to captives taken into exile in Babylon, will return. So we are told in verse 17, there is hope in your future, says the Lord. 
Plus, the Lord has just told the nations in verse 10 here of Jeremiah 31 that he will gather the people, the scattered people of God, and shepherd them. And what Matthew wants us to see when Matthew brings all this together in this jumble of fulfillment in Matthew chapter 2, he wants us to see temporary sorrow out of which God will bring ecstatic joy through Jesus the Messiah returning from a foreign land, namely Egypt. The point of similarity is God has always worked through disaster to bring blessing. Sorrow is not forever. God brings home the sons that are taken away, whether they be captives from Babylon or Jesus from Egypt. And there's also the comfort of future blessing. Look at Jeremiah 31 across the page in verse 31, where the real comfort of the coming day is given us. We're there in this prophecy of weeping in Ramah, Then comes this voice of comfort, the best news that Old Testament believers had, and that was the coming of the new covenant. Look what we're told in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. And then the writer, Jeremiah, gives Israel Four provisions of the new covenant. Any one of these are worth jumping up and dancing for, but he gives them all four. I will write my law upon their minds and hearts. Second, I will be their God and they'll be my people. Third, I will give them the knowledge of God. And fourth, the jewel and the crown of the new covenant. I will forgive all of their sins. So what are we to learn from this text? Look back to Matthew 2. What do we learn and how does it apply to us? The first is this, you should have a sober assessment of how much unbelieving men hate Jesus. Lost men are not ambivalent about Christ. They hate him. Lost men would murder Christ if they could get at him. Don't think that unbelievers, eh, I don't care one way or another about Jesus. They hate him. It was that way 2,000 years ago and is still our reality. Didn't Jesus himself say in the upper room, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Why does Herod want to kill Jesus? Because lost men despise God. They are at enmity with them. And you did too until the Lord in grace sovereignly changed your heart. Another lesson we learn from this text. Every detail in the life of Jesus is prophesied. Whether it's the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, whether it is the flight from Bethlehem to Egypt, whether it is the return from Egypt back to Israel, every detail in the life of Jesus is prophesied. From birth to flight to death to resurrection. He is the amazingly foretold person. This is why he can say after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, the entire Old Testament speaks of me. Another lesson we must learn, because we've fallen for this for far too long. As we watch our culture become more and more obsessed with politics and the civil magistrate, Don't ever think for a moment 
that the cause of Christ and the forward move of the kingdom of God depends on the great, the powerful, and the well-placed. They have seldom done anything for the advancement of the cause of Christ, and they have usually opposed its spread. Herod is one more example of how political leaders have viewed Jesus. They view him as a usurper and a challenge to their rule. This is why we sing in Psalm 146, put no confidence in princes. Not just the psalmist doesn't say, put, you can put a little confidence in princes. No, the psalmist says, put zero confidence in princes. Do not look for a moment for their assistance in advancing the kingdom of God. Another truth we should learn from this. Look at Matthew 2. This incident in Matthew 2 is a foreshadowing of the gospel era that we live in now. Because here what we see is the Jews. Jesus' people, his kin, according to the flesh, they hear of Christ. Everybody in Jerusalem hears the king of the Jews has been born. But they will not travel the five and a half miles south from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to come and worship him. But Gentile visitors from hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles away to the east, will come from far and wide to worship Jesus and present their best gifts to him. This is a picture of what's happening in the new covenant. That God is now calling people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, largely Gentiles, to worship him. We also have to say something about the cause of life. I want you to look at verses 15 through 18. Look and don't avert your gaze. What you see here is the murder by soldiers, Roman soldiers of 20 to 30 little boys in the town of Bethlehem. If an incident involving the slaughter of 20 to 30 boys is given this much space in scripture and seen as a tragedy, and it was, how much more is the murder of 20 to 30 children every day of the year in the state of South Carolina? Do you see the sorrow and the moral outrage of the scriptures over this incident? Can you imagine the divine wrath over the 65 million children slaughtered in the womb in our nation since 1973? The world says, what's the big deal? It's a few kids. But because we're covenantal, because we value our children, because God has made great promises concerning our seed, we mourn wicked events like this one because we're pro-child and pro-life. But this text gives us hope in the midst of tragedy. Just as the exiles in Jeremiah's day would return, we are told in Jeremiah 31, from that day to the midst of the slaughter of the little boys in Bethlehem, there was hope. For a redeemer would return from Egypt and he would provide salvation for all his people. All of the attempts to murder him early and thwart his ministry of atonement would be stopped. Nothing would keep him from his decreed and providentially arranged mission of dying and rising in the place of sinners. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, how we praise you for your minute and exact ordering of all things, especially the conception, birth, flight, childhood, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And now let us think even for a moment of the birth of Jesus. Never let us think of it without rejoicing that it happened all according to your sovereign plan for the salvation of sinners. And so we praise you with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.